Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. A couple of announcements tonight. Number one, we're going to have a family night a week from Saturday. So plan to be here. That will begin about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And we will be watching a, the, the film that's really a test, the testimony of uh, Joe Martin, who was a dental professor at uh, Baylor College of Dentistry in Dallas. And he did go to Dallas Seminary eventually in the uh, 1980s and has had quite a tremendous ministry at some, teaching at Summit Ministries, teaching at a lot of different churches, uh, focusing on a lot of contemporary issues such as creation evolution, um, New Age movement, different types of hot current event types of issues. And he's done a great job. He's got a book out with the same title. So that will be uh, very helpful, I think, for a lot of people to see that, especially since the theme of the Chafer Conference uh, coming up is going to be on creation and evolution. And so you want to encourage anyone you know to come to the conference. It's going to be, a, I think, a very special time this year because we're going to have Dr. John Whitcomb speaking in, in the morning, uh, actually the first session, which is in the afternoon on Monday, and then Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning, and he will be speaking on the creation in chap- Genesis chapter 1. Uh, he'll be also speaking, I think, two of the lectures relate to the flood, and that will be uh, very, very helpful. Uh, he's written a number of books, including the fact that he was the co-author with Henry Morris of the book The Genesis Flood, which really started the whole modern creationist movement. And he has quite an interesting testimony, and we will hear that at one session that we'll have either Tuesday or Wednesday afternoon when I'm going to have a panel set up with uh, Dr. Whitcomb and Charlie Clough and uh, Steve Austin. Steve Austin is the evening speaker. He's with the Institute for Creation Research and has done a tremendous amount of work on uh, geology, and he will be speaking at night, and you won't hear anything like what you will hear from him You may not be able to comprehend it all, but neither do I. I am not a scientist or a geologist, but I can understand the evidence and the conclusions, and that's what's important for anyone, I think, to hear someone articulate the details and the evidence because it builds your own confidence in the truth of the Scripture and helps you understand it, even if you get lost in some of the details, some of the scientific details, because... uh, you don't really have a firm grasp of a lot of technicalities in geology. So that will be good. Steve Austin began to work with ICR when it started in 1972. And I talked to him on the phone yesterday and found out something that I had suspected because when he told me earlier when I had a conversation with him that he had uh, started working with them in 72, I kept thinking, I don't recall seeing your name until the early 80s. I didn't know you started as early as 72, and then something clicked in the back of my head. I remembered uh, hearing that there was uh, a man who worked with, who had written a number of articles for ICR, but he was still working on his Ph.D. in uh, in uh, science, and he couldn't write under his own name. He always had to use a pseudonym when he was writing for ICR because if it became known at the school where he was getting his Ph.D. that he was a creationist, he would... He would lose uh, his position. He, they would find a way to disqualify him and discredit him and remove him from the program. And he t- I asked him about that yesterday, and he said, yep, that was me, and I forget the name he wrote under, but he told me what the pseudonym was, and I remembered uh, having seen that name uh, back in the 70s. So he, he has an, uh, another interesting um, element to this whole history of the creationist movement, and that's what they, those three men will tell us. Charlie is important because he wrote his uh, master's thesis at Dallas Seminary on the impact of the book, The Genesis Flood, among evangelicals. I think it was originally published in 61, and it had a tremendous uh, uh, impact and was rejected by many conservatives 
in the in the 60s and later on because they had already sold out to some form of assimilation in accepting the conclusions of modern science in terms of the age of the earth, in terms of stratification, fossilization, uh, things such as uh, dinosaurs could not have coexisted with men, uh, things like that. In fact, one of Dr. Whitcomb's lectures, I think it will be the second night, is going to be dinos- on dinosaurs and uh, dinosaurs and men. And so Charlie fits into this whole history because of his particular uh, work that was done at that time. He knew Dr. Morris fairly well, so there'll be some reminiscing about Dr. Morris, who also mentored uh, Dr. Austin. And then, um, uh, so that'll be good. We'll have kind of a panel discussion and let them talk about these things, so I think that will help. A lot of people understand where we where we've been, where we are, and where the creationist movement is headed in the future, and some of the connections with things like uh, climate change. Many of the there, there's so much that goes on today, and if you just if you follow the news in just the last week, uh, there's been more and more evidence coming out about how uh, these conclusions about climate change and global warming and glaciers melting in the Himalayas and the melt-off at the polar caps and these things that have been uh, put out by the uh, UN uh, Climate uh, Committee, that this evidence has been fabricated, it's been misshapen, it's based on just extremely slim evidence. Some student's uh, dissertation plus an article in uh, backpacking, hiking, magazine, things of that nature. And what it exposes is the fact that science, the science community is, is not this, this community of object, of men of objective, uh, thought who are seeking truth, but that they have specific agendas that they bring to the evaluation of the data. And in most cases, those who control the faculties, the research departments, the grants, all of those things are men who have already decided that the evidence has to be interpreted in light of create, in light of evolution, which is what we saw in the film that Ben Stein did on Exposed. And there's no objectivity there. So the bastion of science really has a crumbling foundation uh, when it comes to truth, it's just another element in the cosmic system seeking to reinforce uh, the devil's worldview. So this is going to be a great conference. Uh, encourage people to come, especially young people who are in high school, who are in college, who need to hear what the biblical evidence is. And I think this will, will have a, a tremendous impact as well as uh, once we get some of these other things edited and put out, it, it will go throughout the world. There are, I know, three creationist organizations in Houston who have all gotten wind of this, and they're all going, you know, sending out information to their members to uh, come to the conference. So uh, I think the Lord's going to use it in a lot of, lot of uh, different ways. Well, before we get started, that was the first announcement. The second announcement, congregational meeting on Sunday, February the 21st, and that will be immediately following the morning service. That's right. The third announcement is, for those of you who can make it, who have been listening, coming to the conference with Arnold, he will be finishing the Israelology course on Tuesday, February the 9th, from 1 o'clock, 1 p.m. till whenever, whenever 5 or 6 p.m. He will be done by 7.30, though. <laughs> So if you can come, great. That will be live streamed also at that time for those who may be able to uh, watch it via live stream and can keep up with that. So we're encouraging an audience. Yes, we, we, we need, he needs an audience. So if you can come, um, uh, come down here, it's always easier for somebody to speak to people than empty chairs. Now, if you've done this a lot, and I realized this a while back, that if you've done, I've done this so long that I don't need anybody out there, and I know Arnold doesn't either, and you can just get up here and talk as if somebody's there because you do it so much, but it's actually easier to have, have people and a little feedback. Okay. Let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll get, then I'll open in prayer and we'll get started.
Father, we're thankful that we can be here tonight. We're thankful that we can have the time to come to study your word, to be encouraged by the truth that is there, to come to understand you better. For as we study scripture, it is to teach us about you. It is to teach us how you think. It is to teach us how we should live as your creatures, as those who are are created for the purpose of serving you in specific areas of responsibility, that we may be challenged to be uh, better individuals, better husbands, better fathers, uh, better Christians, better citizens, because we are operating on the truth as you have revealed it to us. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study tonight. Help us to see the flow of history that's revealed in these prophecies we're studying and how that should impact our own focus on the future. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Hebrews 11, but don't turn there. Turn to Genesis chapter 49. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 is focusing on the importance of faith in the life of a and is illustrating it in the life of numerous Old Testament believers. These Old Testament believers looked to things, to promises that were unfulfilled in their life. They went through times when they went through tremendous testing, suffering, adversity. They never saw that which God promised. They never had that empirical verification in their own lives, that God fulfilled the promise that he gave them. And yet they did not give up. They did not uh, wipe out spiritually. They did not reach a stage of spiritual retirement. That's a whole other issue. I could preach a sermon on that, that you do not retire from the spiritual life. Uh, I'm encouraged because in our congregation, I don't see a whole lot of people who are uh, reaching their uh, golden years, let's say, and retiring and saying, okay, I've got the RV and I'll be in church maybe once a month and I'm gone. Uh, they're still involved and uh, involved in the local church, which is as it should be once we get past a certain age. And there are those today because of various uh, choices they've made in their past have been able to retire early and some of these people have done what I think a lot more should do, and that is get some training and be involved with a mission organization, be involved in the ministry, be involved in some way serving uh, serving the local church. There's a number of men, I think, who have come out of good, solid doctrinal teaching churches in the past uh, 20 or 30 years who spent 20 or 30 years serving in the military who thought perhaps they might have the gift of pastor-teacher, but they think that ship has sailed. Well, there's a tremendous number of men who have, after a military career, after 20 or 30 years, have gone back to seminary and gotten their degrees and have gone on into the ministry. Dan Ingram is one case in point. Another individual that fits that same pattern is Jim Dumas, who works with... Uh, works with Jim Myers, and we've had Jim visit here now and then when he is back from Kiev, but he retired early from Southwestern Bell and uh, was able to get a nice retirement deal, and he had also uh, retired from uh, from the military in the reserves, and so he was able to convert that retirement income and use that to give him a foundation to where he could then uh, serve on the mission field without being dependent upon a... Uh, local church or believers to support him. And that's a tremendous vision people should have. Just because you're 65 or 70 or 75 years old doesn't mean that it's time to be put out to pasture as a believer. Now you're just worth something. You've learned something. You've got wisdom to pass on to a younger generation. There are great opportunities of service. And so we don't bail out uh, when we get uh, past a certain age, we don't give up just because things get tough. And that's the point that, that the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing to this Jewish audience. Just because you're coming under persecution and rejection by your family and your peers and your Jewish friends because you have trusted in Jesus as Messiah and nothing has happened and you haven't seen promises fulfilled to you or blessings, immediate blessings fulfilled to you, uh, doesn't mean that uh, somehow you made a bad decision. There are many times in this life when we are not going to see immediate gratification 
in spiritual things or answered prayer or things like that because of God's plan and purpose for our life. And there may be postponed gratification to the point that we don't see the real blessing or rewards of our spiritual growth and our spiritual commitment until we are absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. And that is why we have to walk by faith and not by sight. It's not based on empiricism, whether it is the feelings of positive reinforcement from uh, certain spiritual blessings or uh, positive things that happen in this life, but we walk on the basis of the Word of God, and when that is more real to us than anything else that we're experiencing in life, that's when we're finally beginning to get somewhere in our spiritual growth. So the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing this, and in verse 21 he comes to another uh, another example. In Jacob, he's gone through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now he says in verse 21, By faith Jacob... When he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. So he not only blessed each of the sons of Joseph, but he also blesses all of his sons. And so we started with that study in Genesis 49 last time because it ends with the last two sons, John, uh, Joseph and Benjamin, and focuses there a little bit on uh, the blessing to Joseph which comes through his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, which is the subject of, of this, this event that is alluded to in uh, Genesis, uh, Hebrews 11.21. So last time we made it through uh, the tribe of, of Naphtali in verse 21. No, where's Dan? Tribe of uh, Issachar. And this time we'll start with the with the tribe of Dan in verse 16. The chapter begins, Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Now remember, the term last days has to be understood dispensationally. Are we talking about the last days of Israel, which would be Daniel's 70th week? Or are we talking about the last days of of the church, or is it a term that is simply a synonym used in a generic sense for for the future? And I think that in in this chapter, it's more of that sense. It's not so much a technical eschatological term for the last days of Israel or the last days of the. It's certainly not the last days of the church, but I think it it focuses on various trends and characteristics within the descendants of these uh, sons and the tribes that come from them. In uh, verse 28, we read, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. And that emphasis on blessing has to do with his his statement related to their their future and what their destiny would be. That word blessing in Scripture has various senses. In some places, it's a synonym for praise. When we bless God, that word means to praise Him. When people are blessed, that has to do with divine uh, grace and provision in their lives in contexts such as this. It has to do with the inheritance that is being passed on from father uh, father to son. We've seen this chart, which gives us the line of the seed from Abraham through the promised seed Isaac, and then the twins Esau and Jacob. It passes to the uh, younger, the elder Esau shall serve the younger Jacob, a principle that we see again in the, in the uh, uh, prophetic section here, of Genesis 49 and 48, because it's the uh, elder Manasseh that serves the younger Ephraim. So Jacob married Rachel and Leah. Leah first, then Rachel. Through Leah, he first had the four sons, Reuben, Reuven, Shimeon, uh, Levi, Judah, and then through uh, Rachel's handmaiden, Bilchah, he has uh, Dan and uh, Naphtali, and then through 
uh, Leah's handmaid Zilpah. He has Gad and Asher. Then uh, Leah once again conceives Issachar and Zebulon. Then finally Rachel has Joseph and Benjamin. So we'll be looking at just the last few of these. And we're going to start with Dan in verse 16. Now, Dan has an interesting uh, tribal area. As we see on the map that I have up on the screen, the area that's originally given to Dan is this green area here that's kind of uh, L-shaped that begins over here on the coastal plains, moves through the Shephela, which is the low, low, the coastlands and the uh, foothills of the mountains as, as you move west into the hill country. It swings down. This area, Jaffa, is modern Tel Aviv. And the area along here, this is really the highway that goes from Tel Aviv to uh, Jerusalem. And so that was the area originally given to Dan. But they never could conquer. They never did conquer the Canaanites that were there. And finally, about uh, two-thirds of the way through the period of the judges, they decide to go look for their own uh, their own place, and they leave, and they migrate through Benjamin, and there's this episode there with the uh, Lev- Levite, the priest that's, that is set up there with his private religion, and they sort of quasi-kidnap him. He goes along willingly, and they take him all the way up to the north here to um, to Laish, which is then renamed Dan. They conquer the Canaanites there, and they settle up in this northern area uh, of of, Dan, of this area of Dan in the far northern part of of Israel. So that it becomes proverbial when you talk about uh, Israel, the land of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is the far north. And Beersheba is down here in the territory of Simeon, down in the Negev. And so from Dan to Beersheba describes the length of the land. That's like saying from El Paso to Beaumont. For those of you who are just waking up now, it covers the whole territory in between. Uh, 49.16, Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, verse 17, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backward. For thy salvation I wait, O Yahweh. Now this certainly is a cryptic prophecy. Just what in the world does this mean? And the word Dan shall judge uh, his people is a play on words because the word for judge is very similar to the word for Dan, Yadin, uh, shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. This is a verb that means uh, to judge or to govern, uh, though the word is often translated as judge. It is much more inclusive than the modern concept of judging. and encompasses all the facets and functions of government, executive, legislative, and judicial. The Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament defines the word as to rule or to control. So I'm not really sure how this has played out in history, if it has been fulfilled in history, because Dan has never played a significant role. The tribe of Dan has never played a significant role in the history of Israel, but it has played a significant role in the the apostasy of Israel because of what happens under Jeroboam the first as we studied in our studies on first kings. So this is a line that doesn't trace their migration but shows the beginning point and their end as they moved, as they moved forward. Dan actually is one of the worst of all the tribes of Israel. He is, it says that he's going to rule in the future and perhaps that has to do with a tribulation fulfillment. There are those who think that this has to do with the fact that the false prophet comes from the tribe of Dan, and that may very well be. Uh, the word judge, which means to rule, indicates some sort of authority, and since this has never 
uh, happened historically, then it must happen at some time in the future. Dan, as a tribe, always brought up the rear in Israel. It was never a primary tribe. It was the first tribe to go into idolatry, and that's described in that bizarre little perverted episode in Judges chapter 18, verse 30. They were also the last tribe to receive an inheritance in the land, which they failed to fully uh, conquer. They failed to trust God in taking the land. They assimilated with the uh, with the uh, Canaanites in the land. Uh, Judges, I mean Joshua, nineteen forty seven to forty nine describes that, and and just about every list of the tribes of Israel that involves merit, Dan is listed uh, last. For example, in First Chronicles chapter twenty seven. Uh, the tribes are listed according to merit, and Dan is last. And Dan is not mentioned among the twelve tribes that are listed in Revelation chapter seven, when there is a listing of the twelve tribes and the twelve thousand from each of the tribes that go into the land. Rather than Dan, you have a reference to Joseph. So Dan is also omitted from genealogies in First Chronicles. Chapters 2 through 10. So all of that adds up to the fact that Dan is of little significance historically in Israel, at least from a positive spiritual uh, viewpoint. In verse 17, Jacob said, Dan shall be a serpent by the way. This is not a positive illustration. This is, is no, the serpent had no more of a positive um, image in Israel than uh, it has in the United States. It's uh, further in the poetic uh, structure. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path. So ser- from serpent to viper, you move from the general to the specific of a poisonous snake that bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls backward. It's, Dan is going to cause problems and is going to be the source of injury. That's the imagery that is uh, set forth there. It is very likely that the ultimate fulfillment of this is in the tribulation if this is um, is prophetic, and I think there's a, a strong case for that, that Dan is going to play a very negative role among the Jews in the end times. We do have the picture of the serpent in Revelation 12.9 in terms of the great dragon who is cast out of heaven called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, and he's cast to earth at that point. But he is called, uh, he is the serpent of old, as described in that chapter in Revelation uh, chapter 12. So Dan is the picture of, is the picture of this deception and is a picture of leading the nation astray and seems to be the source of oppression in the tribulation period. And then we have uh, the last verse, uh, verse 19 in Genesis 49, uh, 49:19. I don't have a slide for this. Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph. At, oh, excuse me, I'm skipping to the next one. Uh, the last phrase for, for Dan is verse 18, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord, which seems to indicate that there is a positive turning at the end. So uh, there is a movement there, but again, I believe that is just so cryptic, I'm not sure exactly what the uh, long-term application of that is. Then we come to verse um, uh, 19, I'm going to skip through a couple of these slides I put up here. This is, took too much time in the introduction with uh, um, announcements to go through some of that. Okay, verse 19 is going to focus on Gad. Now, Gad ha- is in the Transjordan. Trans is, means across the Jordan. The focal point of all these directions is always from Jerusalem. And so across the Jordan is always across the Jordan from Jerusalem. So the area to the uh, east of the Jordan is considered the Transjordan. This is the modern um, Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe, uh, half of the tribe of Manasseh 
were in the Transjordan. So Gad is in, uh, in the middle. And what we read here in verse 49:19 is a rather short. Gad, a troop, shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at the last. And then verse 20 is going to focus on his brother, Asher. These are the two sons of Zilpah, Gad and Asher. And Asher is uh, said to be bred from Asher, shall be rich, and he shall yield royal dainties. So both of these prophecies are, are positive. They are both positive in the sense that though Gad is going to be beaten down historically, at the end he will triumph. And I believe that indicates that in the, uh, especially in the tribulation period when you have a remnant that there will be a large percentage from the tribe of, of Gad. Uh, Asher is also emphasized in these verses. As bread from Asher shall be rich, this would emphasize the uh, productivity of Asher. If you look at the at the map again, Asher is located on the coastlands uh, north of modern Haifa, up into the area that would that is modern Lebanon, up into Phoenicia. That was the tribal land given to Asher. This is very productive farmland and is a source of tremendous agricultural. Uh, agricultural production. So this indicates that Asher will provide much for the nation. And then the next tribe that's mentioned is Naphtali. Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Now the tribe of Naphtali is just to the, let me back up here, just to the east of Asher. This is in the area of Galilee. The predominant part of Galilee would be under uh, Naphtali as the center of the uh, northern part of Galilee, just north of the Sea of Galilee. This would include the areas, the cities of Tiberias, Capernaum, where Jesus lived, all of the areas where Jesus ministered in his Galilean ministry, uh, for the most part, were in the area of, of Naphtali. And so positive things are said about uh, about Naphtali. He's the sixth son of Jacob, and he's the second son of of uh, Bilhah, I believe, if I got that right. Yeah, the second son of Bilhah. And it's a reference to uh, the fact that he is one who is uh, who moves around the word for a, the word translated deer here is a word for a young deer and it's a, often used as a synonym for swiftness and the idea that he is a deer that is let loose is that he has been sprung from a from a trap so naphtali is pictured here as a deer that has been about to be caught in a trap or has been trapped but is able to get loose and then to escape the danger. Uh, this could have been fulfilled in a couple of different instances in the Old Testament. In Judges 4-6, uh, Barak, who is the uh, general who won't go to war unless Deborah goes with him, is from the tribe of Naphtali, and he is uh, able to defeat the uh, enemies of the king of Hatsor and the Canaanites, and so the, he, he he traps the, in, them at the battle that occurs there in Judges chapter 5 and has victory over them. Also, we know that there are uh, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali who are going to be uh, regenerate during the tribulation period, and so they will also have a... Uh, tremendous ministry, that kind of thing could be an allusion to beautiful words. Often the phrase beautiful words alludes to the gospel. So that could be an allusion to future evangelistic ministry from the tribe of Naphtali. But as I said, those are three pretty cryptic prophecies, and it's hard to be much more specific as to what is involved there. Then we come to a more detailed prophecy, which is Joseph. And this is, we're on much surer ground in understanding the prophecy of Joseph. And this covers several verses from verse 22 
through verse 26, where we're told that Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. That's a very easy image and metaphor to understand. Verse 23, the archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. Uh, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And then verse 25, by the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. So there is a special blessing that goes to Joseph, and this it ends up because he receives the double blessing. He is he receives this through his two sons who are Manasseh and Ephraim. So he gets a double blessing, which means that as the he's not he's the second to youngest, but as the younger uh, except for one of the brothers, he is the younger whom the elders will serve, following again that principle that the oldest serve the younger, and he's the one who receives the double portion, the double blessing that should go to the firstborn. But he is uh, far from being the firstborn. Joseph was the first son born to Jacob and Rachel, who was the real love of his life. Rachel had been barren for many years and unable to conceive and have a son, though that was her desire. And finally, after Leah had had six and each of the concubines had had uh, two each, finally God allowed her to become pregnant and she conceived and then she gave birth to a son. Now, she is one of several women in the scriptures who are barren, and that is not just by accident. Their barrenness is... Uh, is emphasized because it is a picture of the fact that only God brings life where there is no life. It is a picture of the fact with the uh, with the patriarchs of Israel that the nation of Israel is miraculously born because Sarah, the wife of Abraham, was beyond childbearing years and she was barren and she never could have children until there was the miraculous conception and birth of of Isaac. And then Isaac married Rebekah, and Rebekah was barren until finally God allowed her to conceive. And then now Rachel. So here you have the three wives of the three patriarchs of Israel are all unable to conceive until God miraculously enables them to conceive and give birth demonstrating that the nation of Israel is brought into existence in a miraculous way, and they have a special divine mandate. And so when she is able to finally conceive and give birth to Joseph, she cries out in verse uh, Genesis thirty twenty four. Uh, the Lord shall add to me another son. And this word add in the Hebrew is yasaf, which is where the word Joseph comes from. It means to increase or to continue. And so she, God has added to her a son. And so Joseph begins uh, his prophecy with this uh, blessing in verse 22 that talks about how Joseph has already been blessed by God. He's a fruitful bow. He has done much. He is the one who, uh, through his the dreams that God gave him while he was in prison, was able to inform the Pharaoh of the coming uh, of the coming famine. And through his wisdom and planning, they were able to lay aside the stores that would not only get the Egyptians through the famine, but also get his own family through the famine as they brought. Uh, Jacob and the sons and all, 70 came down with, with Jacob from the area of Canaan and were then provided for because of Joseph's wisdom. So he is a fruitful bough. He has had much 
of production already. And he's not just a fruitful bound, but he's said to be by a well or a spring, an active spring, so that in the desert this is a plant that is by a permanent water source, and so it is going to grow faster and stronger and be more productive than anything uh, around. And the imagery, of course, ultimately goes back to the fact that he and his spiritual life is firmly planted in his relationship with God and in the Word of God. You have the same kind of imagery all the way through Scripture. Uh, Psalm 1 is a very famous uh, place that the person who is blessed by God and focuses on God is like a tree planted by the waters. And so the same imagery is used again and again in Scripture to refer to the believer that he is firmly planted in the Word of God, and the Word of God is the source of his spiritual blessing. And this produces tremendous growth which is indicated by the third phrase, his branches run over the wall. There's much growth there and much uh, much production. And then in verse uh, 23, we read, and uh, verse 23, the archers have bitterly, grieved, have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. And this depicts the adversity that he has uh, that he has encountered in his life, and he has encountered a tremendous amount of uh, opposition and antagonism. He had was an, received antagonism and hatred from his own family. His brothers uh, sold him into slavery. First they tried, uh, thought they would murder him, and then they decided to uh, make a little money on the deal and sell him into slavery. As a slave in Potiphar's house, he was falsely accused of of rape by Potiphar's wife who had attempted to seduce him, but he had resisted it. In prison, he was uh, ignored and forgotten by those he helped, and he was left to languish alone, and he was there he learned that he must trust and rely upon God because God alone is our source of happiness. God alone is our source of stability. And until we learn to trust him in those dark places, then we can never be truly successful in our Christian life. So he learned to handle the pressure by relaxing and focusing on God. And as a result of being planted and rooted in God, he was blessed in many ways. He was blessed while he was a slave in Potiphar's house. He was blessed while he was in prison. And he was blessed when he came out of prison and he was before Pharaoh and when he served Pharaoh in the uh, after interpreting the dreams and um, providing for the future of the Egyptians. So he is a picture throughout Scripture of the successful believer. And any believer can do the same thing. We have more than he did. We have a completed canon of Scripture, and we have uh, the indwelling Holy Spirit and the power of God the Holy Spirit. But the basic issue is for us is the same as for him. It's volition. Volition is what makes the difference between the the brothers that were failures and Joseph because he made a decision to focus on the Lord. And when it comes right down to it, volition is not simply a matter of choice. It's a matter of dedication and commitment in a particular direction. It's a matter of commitment to a, to a course of action, and so that calls upon us to be mentally focused and to concentrate. Now, one thing I've discovered as I get a little older is that I don't concentrate like I did when I was younger. But I'm sure glad I established some of these habit patterns when I was younger because the longer we go without them, the harder it is to reestablish them. But we need to do that. It is more that I study the Word, the more I see that the key issue in the spiritual life is mental, and it has to do with mental discipline and mental focus. And we have to make those decisions to be consistent in our application of the Word, and that when we go through those hard times and the fires of adversity become intense, that we have to be able to focus and concentrate and blot out of our minds the distractions that are there 
that come from all of that, all the, the, the distress of life and the adversity of life, and keep our focus on the Lord because He is the end game. And we may never understand why we're going through the things we're going through or how God is using them in our lives spiritually, and we're not asked to understand those things. We're not expected to understand those things so that we can then apply them. We are simply to trust him. That's this whole focus in Hebrews 11, that we're to walk by faith and not by sight. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for, the assurance of things not seen. So we have to learn to focus on the reality of God's word. And so Joseph does that. And as part of that, we develop our skill in what we call the faith rest drill. And it is a drill because it's something we have to practice over and over and over again. And usually we don't like doing drills. When I was a kid and I was taking piano lessons, I had to get up every morning and I had to practice for 30 minutes every morning. I hated doing that, but I had to do that. And when I was in band, when I was in junior high and high school, we had to come in three or four days a week and we had to log in a certain amount of time in the practice room. And the, when I was in high school, we just had all these technique drills we had to play over and over again. There's nothing worse than that. It's, there's nothing melodious about it. There's no great tune there. You're just playing, you're just playing drills again and again and again, but they develop and improve your ability to perform when you are with the rest of the band or orchestra and playing. And so we go through these drills in uh, many other areas of life, whether it's dance, whether it's business, whether it's uh, football, any kind of athletics. There's always these drills, and it's discipline again and again and again. What that boils down to over and again, just that one word, volition. Our lives are the product of the decisions we make, and the way we do things is the way we've decided to do them. And sometimes we have to take a good hard look and say, you know, we have settled for second best in what we're trying to do, and we have to set our standards a little higher, and we have to press on because the issues have an eternal uh, an eternal value. We have to remember the promises of God, and we have to utilize them. Second Peter 1 Peter 1.3, one of my... Uh, favorite passages that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He didn't leave anything out. His grace didn't drop something. He didn't forget that, oh, yeah, that's right, there's that one problem area in your life, and I failed to provide for you. So you have an excuse to whine. No, there's no whining in the Christian life. So he has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness, and it is through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And that's what we see in Joseph. He is learning to, and he's building that personal relationship with God, trusting him and learning to apply the promises. And the main promise he has is the promise of the seed and the promise of inheritance, which is has not been fulfilled in his life or in the life of Abraham, Isaac, or, or his father, Jacob. And so he's focusing on the future. Second Peter 1 4 says that it is by this, that is the character of God, that he has given us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. That is that by uh, claiming those promises, then we are able to imitate God and reflect his character in our life. And so Joseph is a picture of the believer who is focused on God and as a result uh, grows, uh, grows to maturity and is a blessing for all those around him. And that's the focal point that we see coming up in the next verse. In Genesis 49:24, we read, But his bow, his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong, by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. In verse 24 and 25, we have 
five different names of God that emphasize different aspects of his, of his character. And the first is the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. And the word hand is often used in Scripture as a metaphor for the omnipotence or the power of God. It is in the hands of a person that the strength of the upper body is carried out in whatever a person is doing, if they're an artist in, in uh, doing sculpture work or something of like that, working with their hands, they're craftsmen, it is through the skill of their hands that, um, that they produce what they're going to produce. So hands is a metaphor for the power of God, and it is a reference to the phrase in the previous clause, the arms of his hands, that is the arms of Joseph, Joseph's arms were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. And so it is not our strength, but God's strength. It's not our power, it's God's power. We cannot do it in our own power. We try to do it on our own apart from promises, apart from consistent application of the word, and we will always fail. But when we're trusting in God, he is the one who will lift us up. So the hands emphasizes his omnipotence, mighty God emphasizes also his omnipotence, and the phrase mighty God of Jacob is used six times uh, in the Scripture. For example, Psalm 132, verse 2, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. See, this goes back to God's manifestation of himself, to Jacob, as Jacob is going through all of those growth stages he went through as he has his initial uh, deceptive spat with uh, his brother Esau, and then he has to run for his life and go uh, live with the relatives up north in Haran. And there he has the the battles back and forth with uh, dear old cousin Laban, who's going to out-connive who? And uh, Laban is uh, tricking uh, the trickster, Jacob, and Jacob is trying to trick uh, Laban, and Jacob is always working to get control of things to bring about the blessing. And God's just sitting back and saying, one of these days you're going to run out of gas, and then you're going to finally trust me, which is what happens. And then God shows that he is the mighty one in Jacob's life. Isaiah 124 refers to the Lord of the armies, the Lord of hosts, is the mighty one of Israel, Israel being the uh, alternate name for Jacob. Then Isaiah 49, 26, again, uh, the Lord refers to himself, I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. So this becomes a title for God. He is not only the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he is the mighty one of Jacob. And this blessing goes back to uh, Isaiah 48:15, where uh, Jacob had referred to God, the God of Abraham and the God of, of Isaac. Now, the second title that is used of God in this passage is that he is the shepherd. And the shepherd, and the idea of a shepherd, this is something that is, that I've thought through for years and years because the shepherd is the metaphor for the pastor. The word, English word pastor is just another word, a synonym for a shepherd. Now when we think of a shepherd, there's a lot of different things that shepherds do for sheep. But the Bible is very clear as to where this metaphor is to be applied in terms of using this term shepherd. It applies to the leadership of, of Israel. In Jeremiah, they're, they're, they're bad shepherds. They're false shepherds that are leading the people astray. They're bad leaders. Uh, the, the key element, I think, in, in the term pastor and shepherd is to emphasize leadership. Leadership, the pastor does it through teaching. That's why in Ephesians uh, 4, 11, and 12, you have the gifts that are given there that are related to the local church of the uh, apostle and prophet, the evangelist, and the pastor and teacher. And those two words are linked together in a, in a grammatical way as a tight figure of speech called a hendiadis. And the way that the pastor 
leads is through teaching. That's how he feeds the sheep. That takes us back to John chapter 21 when Jesus has that interchange on the beach with Peter and says, Peter, if you love me, you will feed my sheep. That is defining the role of the pastor. He feeds the sheep. That He doesn't go and do a lot of other things that a shepherd metaphor might uh, might imply. But the scriptures use this again and again. For example, in Psalm 23, uh, David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I think in some ways that sets the tone of that whole psalm. It's a wonderful psalm. We've all read it and heard it, and I've taught it before. But how is the shepherd manifested in this in this psalm? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. See, the activeness of the Lord as shepherd is related to leadership. Uh, he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they come for me. The rod and the staff have to do with moving the sheep along in terms of discipline, in terms of uh, punishment, in terms of protection. So this is leadership. Again, preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runneth over. All of these have to do ultimately with God leading the believer, leading in his life and providing uh, for him. So the third phrase that's used uh, to refer to God, he's called the stone of Israel. This is the word Evan, where we get the word later on, Evanetzer. Uh, the Lord is the stone of help. Uh, here, Evan, the God, is our helper, this is our stone, the stone of Israel. And, in, for example, in Genesis uh, uh, 28, 13, this relates back to the... Um, back to God's faithfulness to his promise. The idea of a stone or a rock is that which is immovable and unshakable. In Genesis 28:13, God reiterated the promise uh, to Jacob that he had given to uh, Abraham and to Isaac. So again and again we have this, these image, the imagery of, of uh, faithfulness, the imagery of God's consistency and that he will not depart from his promise. Uh, Genesis 49:25 goes on to say, But the God of your Father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you. So he is the Almighty, or once again emphasizing his power. He is the one who is powerful enough to bring about uh, that which he has promised. The word for uh, Almighty here is Shaddai, which emphasizes the idea of the all-sufficient one, or the sustainer, the all-sufficient one, or uh, or the sh- sustainer, because he is the one who provides. And El Shaddai is a was first used of, of the Lord in Genesis uh, chapter 17, verse one. It's a title that's used 48 times in the New Testament. So we come and we read on into verse 26: the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Notice the reminder again of the adversity of how he was mistreated by the by his brothers. And so when this talks about all of these blessings, it talks about the totality of these blessings that will come upon him as the one who is at the head of the family now. He is the one who is, is um, portrayed as the, as the real leader, the one who now receives the double portion of the blessing. And so we go from Joseph, and his prophecy concludes in verse 26 to uh, Benjamin, in verse 27, Benjamin is portrayed as a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall devoid the spoil. And we'll come back next time, wrap up with Benjamin, 
and then look at the specifics of the double blessing to Ephraim and Manasseh before we go back into Hebrews uh, 11.22 and move forward into, into Moses. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time that we've had here in your word tonight to be reminded of who you are as the almighty God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who parted the Red Sea. You are the God who gave the Israelites victory over the Canaanites. You are the God who gave David victory over, over Goliath. You are the God who has provided in so many ways down through the ages in the church age. And, Father, we are to trust you because you are still the same God. And even though we do not see you, we do not touch you, we are to uh, rely upon you by virtue of faith walk by faith, trust in you, implement that in our lives, focus on you, and let you be the real source of our strength, our power, our ability in life that we may have our lives transformed as we learn to to trust in you and let your hands be the power in our hands. We pray that we might be reminded of this and encouraged in many different ways as we face the different challenges which we all have in life, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.